Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and it's back to the grind here in Washington as we bid farewell to the dog days of summer and say hello once again to life as we normally know it. And for many of the politicos in our fair city, life as we know it is all about power. Who's got it? Who's seeking it? And yes, who may be on the cusp of losing it? So this week, as we enter the frenzied final months of the fall political campaigns, the focus of our show will be power. Political power, yes, but also the power of local developers, of migrant workers, and of superheroes. Real-life superheroes. To kick things off, though, we decided to ask a bit of a hypothetical question. What would you do if you had unlimited power in your life? Our editorial assistant, Lauren Landau, hit the streets of Silver Spring, Maryland to get the answer. Unlimited power. I mean, I feel like I would really try to use it for the best good, for the highest good, because it's not about me at all. What would I do with unlimited power? I do a lot. First of all, I help the economy. I would give it back. I wouldn't want it. Second of all, stop the war on poverty. Change my neighborhood. Make other people's lives better. No more muggings or beatings or shootings. I live in a bad neighborhood in D.C., so... I do it more for people than anything. God, I hope I never get that. I have no idea. Probably horrible things because absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, I mean, I just I think it would make me really greedy. Saying it like it is. Those were local residents speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau in Silver Spring. We'll head to downtown D.C. now to a street that's all about political power. Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest has the White House at one end, the Capitol at the other, and in between it has the John A. Wilson Building, home to the mayor and the D.C. Council. I recently met with WAMU's district reporter, Patrick Madden, on the steps of the Wilson Building, and I asked him about what political wins may bring to city leaders and residents, especially given all the scandals that have recently been blowing in those wins. With the specter of scandal and federal investigation still looming over City Hall, this is still going to affect what gets done, what doesn't get done inside the Wilson building. Because right now, everyone seems to be waiting for the next shoe to drop. And that's affecting the mayor's ability to pass legislation, the council's ability to get stuff done. Because, I mean, just take, for example, there's a new council chairman, Phil Mendelson, who just stepped in because the former council chairman resigned and pleaded guilty to several crimes. So as these federal investigations continue, as these scandals uh, still loom over City Hall, there's just so much uncertainty that it's really tough for stuff to get done right now. You mentioned Phil Mendelson and how he is the new chair of the council. Um, he's going to try to hold on to that position in November's election, as far as we know. And I guess he's known as a pretty soft-spoken kind of guy, pretty low-key kind of guy. How would you say he's defined power in his role as chair? Phil Mendelson is the acting chair. He stepped in for Kwame Brown. He has a reputation, as, as you mentioned, is very low profile. He's, he's known sort of uh, in the halls of the Wilson Building as a nitpicker. He's very detail-oriented. He famously sort of, when reading legislation on the dais, will notice there's a typo, and he will sort of ask the secretary if they can correct that on the spot. So he's micromanager. He is a nitpicker, as he has famously calls himself. And in terms of what that means for power, it's unclear. He certainly um, knows the Wilson Building. He knows the committees better than anyone else. He's a former council staffer for many years. So it'll be interesting to see what that means in terms of legislation. I mean, it's interesting to note that since all these investigations started, there hasn't been 
any real big-ticket items that the city has passed. You look at Mayor Fenty, he passed education reform. There was the big stadium deal with Mayor Williams. Same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage. All of these sort of major pieces of legislation, there hasn't been that under Gray. And I don't know if that's because of these investigations, whether he doesn't have enough political capital to sort of move big-ticket items, but that's been the case so far. And it's interesting, on the point of political capital, I think it's hurt the mayor because a lot of the council members that he normally would have relied upon as mayor to sort of push stuff through, he's lost. I mean, Mary Che famously endorsed him, was his go-to person in the beginning. Well, she called for him to resign a couple months ago when one of these indictments came down. So the mayor is probably not in a very powerful, strong position to move a, a big piece of legislation right now. Let's, let's talk on a national level now. Uh, as you know, Democrats from all over the country have been down in Charlotte this week for their convention. And it sounds like the D.C. Democrats, uh, for lack of a better word, sounds like they were getting dissed. I think it was Monday that Eleanor Holmes Norton basically said it wasn't even clear whether they'd be given a chance to speak at all. Do you think we're at a low ebb in terms of this mostly Democratic city's influence on a national level? Without a doubt. I mean, you just have to look at these two conventions and the party platforms to see that the, the, the district's message is not resonating anywhere. I mean, the Republican convention, there were a couple of pieces in the platform talking about how, well, we would support Puerto Rico's right for statehood, but the district we do not support at all. There were other parts basically just continuing to use the district as sort of a way to pass all sorts of legislation that they want to pass, whether it's uh, loosening the city's gun control laws, uh, abortion regulations. And then you look at the the Democratic Convention and the district, uh, there's no mention of D.C.'s push for statehood, which had happened in the past. I think the year 2000 was the last time it was included in the the Democratic platform, but it's not anymore. So it's unclear uh, where the local D.C. uh, delegation, where where their message is being heard, because it's not happening at either party on a national level. If you go back four years ago when President Obama took office, there was a lot of optimism within the D.C. vote and other groups that are pushing for D.C. autonomy because you had a Democratic president, you had a Democratic-controlled House, and you even had a filibuster-proof Senate. So the belief was it will be really easy for someone in the Democratic Party to sort of push, whether it was statehood or a vote in the House, but that never happened. And now, as you know, the Republicans control the House. The, the, the Democrats' uh, filibuster-proof uh, majority is no longer there, and obviously the, the White House is up for grabs. So, yes, I would say for the folks here at the Wilson Building, this is the low ebb of um, their influence. Patrick Madden is WAMU's district reporter. now from political power to economic power. We've all heard the saying that money makes the world go round, right? And in our region, one county is quite literally taking a global approach to economic development as it hires staff in various corners of the planet to try and woo corporations to set up shop here. Rebecca Blatt takes us on a bit of a global journey, one that begins with a road trip right here in our region. Driving around Fairfax County, Virginia, it's clear economic development is happening in a pretty big way. 
Office buildings are going up, roads are under construction, and the beginnings of a new metro line stretch overhead. To understand why so much economic power is concentrated here, I went for a ride around Tyson's Corner with Jerry Gordon, president and CEO of Fairfax County's Economic Development Authority. Where are you taking us this morning? We're going to ride over to the Hilton Hotel, which is here in Tyson's Corner, and uh, right next door to the world headquarters of Hilton Worldwide. And why have you chosen to take us there? Well, this part of Tyson's Corner has not only Hilton, but also a lot of government contractors. It's a very diverse economy, and you'll see a lot of that diversity here. We pass shopping centers and office buildings. There are 26 million square feet of office space in Tyson's Corner alone. Gordon pulls into a parking lot with high-rises on three sides. This is the Hilton McLean Hotel. On the other side of the building is the corporate headquarters for Hilton Worldwide. Right to our right here is the Capitol Beltway, and on the other side of the Capitol Beltway, you can see the headquarters of Capital One. That's their global headquarters. These companies generate local tax revenue and support growth, and Gordon's Economic Development Authority goes out of its way to court them. Fairfax is the only county in our area to fund offices out of state and overseas. They're staffed by business leaders who are local to those communities. So if you call the office in Los Angeles, you'll get a message like this. Hello, you've reached the Fairfax County Economic Development Authority. We're unavailable at this time. Please leave a message. But try the Munich office. Or the Tel Aviv office. And you get a different message. Ross Clark directs the authority's London office. We would like to think that we understand the market pretty well. I would imagine that if I was transported over to Fairfax or Washington, I would uh, have difficulty understanding the market as well as the local person. Clark has been working in the London office for more than a decade. In the early 2000s, it was still a little difficult because there was not the the widespread or, or the general understanding of where Fairfax County was and what was on offer there. But we would like to think that by working with the headquarters staff in Fairfax and through our own efforts here, that profile has been raised considerably. But not everyone agrees that international offices are the best way to draw global economic power. Across the Potomac, there's a lot going on in Montgomery County, Maryland, too. Choice Hotels is building a new international headquarters in downtown Rockville. It's right next door to Montgomery County's Department of Economic Development. Steve Silverman directs the department and says he works with the state of Maryland, which does have overseas offices, to bring in companies from around the world. We find it to be much more cost effective and as a practical matter, uh, virtually any foreign company that's looking to locate uh, in Montgomery County is going to have some interaction with the state of Maryland anyway. Silverman says the county has been able to attract some foreign companies over the past few years, including the Chinese pharmaceutical company Tasley. But he says there just aren't that many foreign companies looking to move here. There's a perception that there are hundreds of companies in China, Korea, India, Israel that are waiting to establish beachheads in the United States. That really isn't the case. And he says it makes sense to focus on supporting the companies that are already in our region. The more we can put programs in place to provide technical assistance for small businesses to start, uh, to expand, the more we can focus in on IT and cyber 
cybersecurity, life sciences, government contracting, the more we'll be able to distinguish ourselves. But sometimes, Silverman says, key factors in corporate decision-making are outside the county's control. It's really landlord v. landlord in terms of the company decisions about where to locate. In reality, if someone's going to get a much lower rent across the river, uh, we may not be able to keep them here or get them here. It turns out in the competition for global economic power, sometimes the most influential people are the ones right here at home. I'm Rebecca Blatt. Time for a quick break, but in just a minute, who wins and who loses when a neighborhood changes? I consider gentrification an an attitude. It's the idea that you are coming in as a planner or a developer or a city agency and looking at a neighborhood as if it's a blank slate. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we are talking about power. We just heard about the globe-trotting Fairfax County is doing to try and lure powerful corporations to our region. And now we're going to focus on a very different story about economic power, the story of laborers who come here from other countries to work at our nation's farms. The Bureau of Labor Statistics consistently ranks farm work among the three most dangerous industries. Right now, it has the highest fatality rate of any job in the United States. Any job. Despite the perils, though, we have more than 3 million farm workers in the United States. Most of them will stay in the fields their entire working lives. But as Emily Friedman tells us, each year a small group of these workers finds its way onto a new career path. I'm standing at Garner's Produce in Warsaw, Virginia. It's a roadside market stocked with nearly every fruit and vegetable on earth. Roma beans, butter beans, nectarines. Onions, tomatoes, watermelon, honeydew, garlic. This place is packed with produce. Produce that was planted, cultivated, and picked by farm workers. I think most of us don't really realize where it's coming from or... You know, that someone had to actually do all the physical work to be out there in this heat and pick those things. Sarah Lopez grew up in the area and now works with Telemon. Telemon is an organization that helps legally residing farm workers do things like learn English and enroll in GED classes. Fewer than half of the U.S.'s three million farm workers are here legally. But for those she can help, Sarah's job is to go out into the fields, speak with workers, and explain that by getting more training, they can completely change their lives. Telemont Corporation, Sarah Lopez speaking. We're in Sarah's office where she fields calls and fills out paperwork as she chats with Vanessa. Vanessa's 20 and has just started studying to become a phlebotomist. Um, the people that draw blood and do the blood work and all that stuff. Vanessa's mom is a farm laborer. If Vanessa were to follow the same path as her mother, 
she could expect to make about $8,000 a year. Those calculations, Vanessa says, were enough to make her realize she wanted to take a different path. I took my first medical terminology test and I got an 88. Oh, Vanessa picks up her daughter, Yamily, and bounces her on her lap. Telemon will pay the bill for daycare while Vanessa is in class. All the funding comes through the Department of Labor through the National Farmworker Jobs Program. It provides just under $85 million to help farmworkers across the country train for safer and more lucrative jobs. Telemon offices in Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware share just a small slice of that, around $1.5 million. Sarah hands off the check and in walks her next appointment. My name is Miguel Angel Zamora Carranza, but um, almost everyone knows me as Miguel Zamora. Zamora is 21 and works in a tree nursery. Both his parents are laborers, and Zamora has seen that lifestyle firsthand. Typical day for a farm worker during the season would probably mean getting up at about 4 to 4.30 in the morning. Probably by about 5.30, they'll get out to the assigned workplace and start working. David Strauss is the executive director of the Association of Farm Worker Opportunity Programs, or AFOP. If it's a really big crop, it's possible they may work well into sundown. The trick is they don't get overtime pay. Zamora came into Telmon's office three years ago for help, just as he was graduating high school. Since then, he held down his job at the tree nursery and earned an associate's degree in electrical engineering. His school was about 30 miles away, so Telmon helped him pay for gas. But he says it wasn't exactly a free ride. They're not just like, here's a check, do whatever you want with it. Zamora would check in three or four times a month with Sarah, who would ask how his classes were going and make sure he was keeping up. Family members or friends of them, they'll be in farm work and, you know, they don't understand the importance of education or better jobs. And they won't have that emotional support. According to David Strauss of AFOP, when you come from a world of no benefits, no health care, no sick days, professional support is critical. More than 83 percent of people who come for jobs are placed, according to recent data on the National Farmworker Jobs Program. They're extremely dedicated to hard work, and they expect to earn money through their labor. Not everybody has that approach. Sarah Lopez has one more appointment for today. Elsa Palomar has been coming to the offices for ESL classes for four months. She explains her goals go far beyond simply learning English. I want to be a nurse. Roughly 20% of the job seekers end up working in healthcare. Telemon in Virginia has served nearly 200 people in the past year. And though the program has been around for decades, there's no certainty it will survive from one year to the next. It's funded by grants, so we never know, you know, year after year, if we're going to be provided with these funds. And I always try to get them to take advantage of the opportunity that's here for them now. Once someone takes that first step, Lopez says, they keep going and never look back. I'm Emily Friedman. Well, 
head back into the district now for our weekly transportation segment from A to B. This week and next, we're bringing you stories about public transportation and the role it plays in a neighborhood's growth and, dare we say, a neighborhood's power. Next time around, we're going to spend time in the Deanwood and Kenilworth neighborhoods in Ward 7. But we begin today in the Georgia Avenue corridor in Ward 1. It's an area that's seen a lot of demographic change over the past decade, as new residents, many of them white, have moved into historically African-American neighborhoods. And as Martin DeCaro reports, transportation is playing a big role in how this community is evolving. This is going to be the site of another big development where there's post offices. And this two-mile stretch of Georgia Avenue, sandwiched between the Shaw and Petworth metro stations, looks like a big construction zone as projects proposed in the past few years are being realized. There were eight major development projects that were in various stages of planning. This neighborhood already looks a lot different than it did a decade ago. We've been watching this change for the last uh, couple of years or so. You know, we welcome change. I mean, there was a lot that needed to be changed, and there wasn't any, any issue with that. What community organizer Sylvia Robinson does have an issue with is whether the people who've been living here for years will have a voice. She formed the Georgia Avenue Community Development Task Force to monitor the new development rising above the streets in the form of condo complexes and retail outlets. We are a primarily African-American, low-income community. Typically, we're not asked about uh, changes that are coming. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we were very proactive in how the neighborhood got shaped. The D.C.-based Thomas B. Fordham Institute, an education policy think tank, says this area is part of the sixth fastest gentrifying zip code in the entire country. That's based on census data measuring the change in share of the white population from 6% in 2000 to 33% in 2010. But while gentrification is often simplified as meaning wealthier white residents move in as poor black residents move out, Robinson says there is more to it here. I consider gentrification an attitude. It's the idea that you are coming in as a planner or a developer or a city agency and looking at a neighborhood as if it's a blank slate. The slate is getting crowded. Much of the new development is close to the Shaw Metro Station, and Robinson is not opposed to this, but she is concerned that it will create isolated pockets of housing and retail that may not be easily accessible to all residents. The development of our community is really going to hinge on people being able to move up and down that segment of Georgia Avenue freely and, and easily. Right now, folks here don't have too many options to do so other than the 70 bus line. I grew up on riding the 70 buses. It's just notoriously unreliable and uh, always has a very interesting set of characters. They're supposed to run every 10 minutes, but what you'll get is like three buses in a row and then nothing for about half an hour. Robinson says without better bus service, people may not be willing to visit neighborhoods north of the Shaw Metro where there are restaurants, shops, and places to hang out already. Your average resident doesn't talk development and land use and transportation nodes and things like that. They just want to say, hey, if it's easy to get there... You know, I'll go. If not, I won't go. It's a possible unintended consequence of development near a metro station. It may focus economic activity there at the expense of neighborhoods further away. It's the city's job to serve people. And there's a whole range of people that live here that need to be served, and you can't leave some out at the expense of, of others. Anika Rich is a senior at Howard University who has witnessed Shaw's rapid change. It's much more diverse. There 
would usually just be, you know, black people. Black people lived in these houses. They raised their families here. You saw children in the neighborhood. Now you hardly ever see children um, around this way unless they're coming to and from the high school. She shares Robinson's concern that the new development is creating pockets of activity on the Georgia Avenue corridor. I don't think that people are going to be connected to it. Um, I know that there are plans that Howard University has to try and, I guess, lure us to the other side of the street. Getting to those places means taking the 70 bus line. The bus isn't very good. It's not reliable. It's kind of people on it are not the safest people. In recent years, this section of the city has seen safer streets, higher property values, and more shopping options. But some residents have been priced out. Peter Tatian is a senior researcher at the Urban Institute. It's an extraordinary change. I've been in D.C. over 25 years, and I remember when that part of town was considered off-limits by many people that you wouldn't want to even go there. And now it's become one of the priciest areas. Many people cannot afford to buy homes in in this part of the city anymore. The median price of a home is over $500,000 now in, in many parts of Ward 1. Whether the city can maintain enough affordable housing under the pressure of gentrification will determine who remains. We don't just need people who can afford homes that cost over $500,000. We need other folks as well. Residents in Shaw and Pleasant Plains are dealing with a transformation that is yet to arrive in other neighborhoods, even ones with multiple metro stations and plenty of bus service. In part two of this series, we'll visit Dean Wood and Kenilworth in Ward 7 to look at why those neighborhoods have been slow to attract developers despite access to transit. I'm Martin DeCaro. Another community that's changed a whole lot in recent years is Langley Park in Prince George's County, Maryland. The area has become a thriving hub for Latinos, who constitute more than three-quarters of the population. But as Kate Sheehy tells us, translating that majority status into political power has been a challenge. Walter Ronaldo Arias is a Salvadoran immigrant who came to Langley Park 22 years ago. He says there weren't many Salvadorans here then, but now Salvadoran businesses like his restaurant Emily's are everywhere. Arias says when you walk around Langley Park, nearly everyone is speaking Spanish. Our culture is very complicated. People don't put a lot of effort in trying to assimilate to the culture of USA, so they have their own place here. But having their own place also keeps many people from adapting to life in the U.S., and he says the long hours of work most immigrants commit to also marginalize Latino communities. Arias says he, like many immigrants, works seven days a week until sometimes three or four in the morning, leaving little time for much else. We are not prepared academically to help in the evening with homework, to go to the PTA meetings. At seven in the evening, almost everyone is working. Arias says increasing civic involvement is another big challenge for Salvadoran immigrants. The majority of us here, when we get citizenship, almost no one votes. The only way we can better ourselves for people to know us is to vote. But most people don't realize that because that's the way our culture is, very informal. He says Salvadorans have a beautiful culture, but they just don't know how to promote it. 
Bill Hanna is one of those trying to reach out to the local Salvadoran community. At dinner time on a recent summer day, he settles into a booth at one of his favorite spots, Ereni's Pupusaria, just up the street from the bustling center of Langley Park. He orders his usual, thick corn tortillas, known as pupusas. Hannah began working in Langley Park in 1995. He chose the location for a group of his students from the University of Maryland's urban planning program to do research. Initially, it was discovering something about a working class and poor neighborhood. And in part, it was that I, I guess I thought that maybe I could do something that might make a difference. He says he saw a need to mobilize the community to have its voice heard in the local government. Hannah formed Action Langley Park in the late 1990s and began confronting problems with the school system and neglected apartment buildings. But he struggled to get residents engaged with his efforts. He says he has gone from holding meetings monthly to just six times a year. If I were bilingual, we'd be a better organization. Simple as that. Hannah says with few exceptions, people in the neighborhood don't show up. However, he admits it is not just the language barrier keeping people away. Dorita Escobar is the owner of La Chiquita Express, a local chain of restaurants and money-changing locations. She says people call her La Chiquita, another word for small in Spanish, and she named her business after this affectionate nickname. She's only about four foot eight, but La Chiquita is a big name in Langley Park. I know there is a lot of help offering the U.S. and in local governments, but you have to be documented so when you don't have papers, you don't have a voice. She says more undocumented people are getting involved in the public sphere. Still, many are afraid to be noticed. At one of Dorita's check-cashing locations on Riggs Road, customers like Juan Peneda of Honduras wait in line to send their hard-earned money home to the families they are supporting. Many people like Peneda are focusing more on a few big national debates than on local issues. We want immigration reform, he says. We want Obama to fulfill his promise. Finishing his pupusas at Arenis, Bill Hanna says he does believe the needs of Langley Park are becoming more visible to city officials. In April, Prince George's County launched the Transforming Neighborhoods Initiative. Langley Park is one of six neighborhoods chosen to participate in the program, which will focus on many of the issues Hanna identified years ago, problems in schools, safety, and access to health services. Hanna has been attending their meetings. He says he's hopeful but skeptical. I think people seem to care about doing good, but they don't have resources, mind you. They have, re- they have the potential of reallocating, but there's no new money for it. In the meantime, Hannah will continue to do what he can. As he's getting ready to leave the restaurant, a waitress inquires about where she can take English classes, and he is more than happy to help her out. I'm Kate Sheehy. After the break, it's not a bird, it's not a plane, but it is a superhero, a real-life superhero. All of these people are just regular people who put on brightly colored spandex, and they try to put an end to this thing that they can't stand. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. 
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're talking power. We've discussed D.C.'s political power on the national scene, or um, lack thereof. We've explored Fairfax County's quest for global power. But to kick off this part of the show, we're going to look at a kind of power that some may very well say is super. I mean, of course the guy doesn't have, like, actual super hearing or whatever, but it's probably way better than average. Maybe (laughs) way, way better. You know, maybe it's so much better, it even seems super by comparison. Is that so hard to imagine that could be possible? This is a scene from Reels, a world premiere play at Northeast DC's H Street Playhouse. God, it's like you don't even want to believe. Hey, what? Total impossibility, like super hearing? In our mission, assembling an elite team of well-trained, costumed vigilantes to restore order and safety to our streets. Reels explores real-life superheroes, everyday folks who set out to make the world a better place with the help of costumes and nicknames. These characters call themselves Belt and Nightlife. People need to know who we are. They need to know we're out there, fighting for them. Our nicknames are like like symbols. You know, they, they stand for something. Hope. Change. And these costumed, nicknamed heroes weren't something playwright Gwydion Sullivan dreamed up for his show. Belts and nightlife represent an entire community that actually exists. There really are, I'm telling you, hundreds of people around the country who are wearing costumes and doing this all the time. If you Google real-life superheroes, your life will never be the same. And you know what? He's right. Because I Googled real-life superheroes, tacking on the search terms Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. And next thing I know... Stormbringer. Hi, nice to meet you, nice finally. To you. <laughs> I'm in the middle of DuPont Circle. Um, I believe the rest of our people are right over there. Awesome. Meeting members of the Maryland Defenders. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> hello. I'm Rebecca. Kulan. Kulan. Nice, nice to, meet to meet you. you. Hey, this is the Bunny Man. Bunny Man. Hello. Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Bunny Man, for the record, is more of what Stormbringer calls hero support. Though, um, he doesn't seem too fond of that term. That's worse than a sidekick. Come on. You know, really. I'm not Robin. (laughs) Anyway, when Stormbringer, Kulan, and Bunny Man arrive from Upper Marlboro, they turn more than a few heads with what they're wearing. Would we call it a uniform? Costume? I think the general term that I hear is either in-hero or in-gimmick. The whole point of being in-hero or in-gimmick is kind of like what Nightlife was saying about nicknames. It helps you stand out and draw attention to your cause and your deeds. It helps you become a symbol. And Stormbringer wants to be a symbol of what she calls the bridge of understanding between three important parts of her life. I'm Native American and Irish and also a practicing Wiccan. So she decorates her black and blonde streaked braids with leather and feathers and beads, and she wears a Celtic leather bodice emblazoned with pentagrams and bears. Because the bear is a spirit animal that my character chose. As for Kulan, he served six years in the Marine Corps before creating his persona, so his character is inspired by the military. The guy is covered head to toe in military-issued gear, all of it black. Black. Rain slick. Black. BDU pants. Black. Boots. Not to mention heavy-duty gloves, also black. And when he's on the job, so to speak? I usually will have armor plate on my forearms, my upper shoulders, my back, my chest, my thighs, shins. Because Kulan's superpowers include rescuing and rehabilitating stray dogs, more often than not, unruly pit bulls. You see, the Maryland Defender's mission is to promote animal rights. Which perhaps isn't as pow, kaboom, bam, as the acts you'd normally associate with superheroes. But here's the thing. There's actually two separate schools of thought 
when it comes to a real-life superhero. On one hand, Stormbringer says, you've got people like the Maryland Defenders, a subgroup of the Skiffy Town League of Heroes, a national organization dedicated to using creative play to help kids stay on the straight and narrow. And these folks are what you would call costumed activists. They do homeless outreach, they do charity work, you know, in general for the community. On the other hand, you've got patrollers. They break up bar fights, they chase down purse snatchers, they chase drug dealers out of parks. Very dangerous work, and I have a lot of respect for the people that do that. People like Phoenix Jones, the black and yellow costumed crusader in Seattle. Phoenix claims of the 236 arrests real-life superheroes have brought about, he's responsible for 218 of them. Phoenix has become notorious for the videos his ever-present cameraman shoots, like this one, showing Phoenix breaking up a fight. Phoenix, look down, look down. Oh, Huge Phoenix. fight. Go, 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 go. Go! Give me that But not long after this incident, here's what they were showing on the TV news. Seattle's Phoenix Jones was arrested early Sunday morning after police say he assaulted several people with pepper spray. Other reports say the 23-year-old was trying to stop a fight and use the spray after he was attacked. So it may come as no surprise that critics often call patrollers vigilantes. Stormbringer, however, jumps to their defense. Most of these guys that are going out and doing the patrolling, these guys have like mixed martial arts training, self-defense training. Many of them carry uh, tasers or stun guns where that's legal, pepper spray where that's legal. Though no real-life superhero ever carries a gun. It is very much an unwritten rule that we just don't do that. But Kulan worries about people who may not know the unwritten rules of the RLSH movement. The one movie, Kick-Ass. <laughs> Comic books had it wrong. Any ordinary person can be a superhero. There's a dude just like a superhero they're fighting a bunch of guys. It's awesome! Thank you. Who are you? I'm Kick-Ass. When that came out, the movement increased and then quickly decreased as the younger people that see what they see in the movies and they're like, I can do that until they get into real life and they get beat up, not knowing that what they saw on the screen was not exactly accurate. Because becoming a real-life superhero, as Stormbringer says, isn't about butt-kicking for butt-kicking's sake. Heck, it doesn't even have to be about butt-kicking at all. You can help an old woman carry her groceries. You can catch somebody's stray dog that got loose from them. You can pull a kitten out of a tree. All of these things make you a hero to someone. As long as you affect one person, then you've already made an effect of good in the world. And this idea of what truly makes someone a hero, it's one of the themes Gwydion Sullivan tackles in Reels. This play is really asking a lot of very complicated psychological questions underneath the butt-kicking in spandex. I am really interested in the impulses we have to change everything in our worlds. Do we need to put on a mask, symbolic or real, to become somebody different? For all of their creative nicknames and costumes, the Maryland defenders I met would say no. And it's all summed up in their slogan. Because, hey, every great superhero's got to have a slogan, right? Spider-Man has, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Wonder Woman has, govern yourselves with love, kindness, and service to others. Well, the Defenders have their own, too. Be your own hero. (laughs) 
Reels runs at the H Street Playhouse through September 16th. To learn more about the Maryland Defenders, the Skippy Town League of Heroes, and to watch Phoenix Jones crusading around the Emerald City, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Um, so here's a segue we never thought we'd say, but we turn now from superheroes to emperors. Yes, emperors, or to be more precise, one specific emperor and the pretty impressive perks that came along with this guy's power. And we're not just talking jewels. We're not just talking gold. We're talking something really, really special. Sabrina Benashore takes us on a 330-year journey from India to Washington, D.C., on the trail of an imperial treasure from the heavens. Once upon a time, there was an emperor named Jahangir. He ruled over the Mughal Empire in India 400 years ago, and it was huge, stretching from Kabul to Bangladesh. And at certain points, their capitals, say at Delhi, were larger than London. And it was so wealthy. And the empire was, was renowned for its wealth. So our word Mughal, for example, comes from the word Mughal because these reports of their fabulous wealth reached Europe at that time. That's Deborah Diamond, curator of South and Southeast Asian art at the Smithsonian's Freer and Sackler Galleries. She says Jahangir was constantly getting cool stuff from across his empire, and he always interpreted it as a sign that God thought he was awesome. And there are just so many instances, you know, of events or battles or fabulous gems and jewels that were brought to him. And for many Islamic and certainly the Mughal emperors, the wonders that happened, you know, within within their vast empire were were considered, you know, legitimation for their for their power. So one day he got wind of a really crazy story from the Punjab. This is amazing. This is his diary entry, his memoirs from April of 1621. And he says that, you know, one of the strangest things happened At dawn, a tremendous noise arose in the east. It was so terrifying that it nearly frightened the inhabitants out of their skins. Then in the midst of that tumultuous noise, something bright fell to the earth from above. The people thought fire was falling from heaven. A moment later, the noise ceased and the people regained their composure. For 25 feet, the earth had been so scorched that no trace of greenery or plants was left. Nothing. The local tax collector came to take a look, and he ordered the villagers to dig. And the deeper they dug, the hotter it was. Finally, they reached a spot where a piece of hot iron appeared. And it was so hot, it was as if it had been taken out of a furnace. After a while, it cooled off, and the tax collector took it home, placed it in a purse, sealed it, and sent it to court. So today, we recognize that as sounding an awful lot like a meteorite falling to Earth. But back in the day, it was a gift from God. So when it arrived in Delhi, Jahangir ordered his artisans to turn it into two swords and a dagger, which they did. They mixed it with iron and forged it. Word has it that people thought it had magical powers. And Jahangir talks in his diary about how tough the blade was and how amazingly it cut. But that diary entry was the last anyone heard about it. The Mughal Empire rose and fell. Its treasures were plundered or given away as diplomatic gifts. And that was it until after World War II. It was offered to us by an Iranian 
man who was living in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s. This businessman showed up with this amazing-looking dagger. He said it was the dagger, the gift from the heavens. So, you know, it does kind of just kind of glisten and shimmer in a special way. Diamond is looking at the blade. It's about 10 inches long, shimmering in all its imperial glory. So if you look on the hilt, you can actually see an inscription. The words, a spark of imperial lightning. And then if you look at the blade, which has this watery appearance. It looks like water or maybe wood grain. But is it the real deal? Well, to answer that, researchers needed to get inside the metal on the atomic level to figure out just what it was and what was making that wood grain pattern on it. In early tests, they dripped acid on the blame and decided it was a fake. But then they got better tests. Our head of conservation and scientific research had uh, used a a modern tool, X-ray fluorescence analysis. Blythe McCarthy is senior scientist with the Freer Gallery. X-ray fluorescence is when you zap something with an X-ray and the X-ray interacts with the electrons in the atoms, the different metal atoms. So you can tell if you've got nickel. And it did. A whole lot of nickel, which coincidentally is one of the key elements in metallic meteorites. So are you fairly sure that this is the dagger from space? Well, I think we can say fairly certainly that it has a portion of a meteorite in the blade. Jahangir's magical space dagger is now everyone's gift. It's on display to the public in the Freer Gallery. I'm Sabri Beneshore. You can see photos of that space dagger and find out why meteorites contain so much nickel on our website. That's metroconnection.org. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Springland Farm in northwest D.C. and Pleasant Valley in Knoxville, Maryland. My name is Mary H. Gross. I was born in Pleasant Valley the third month, 24th day, 1911. And I've lived here in Pleasant Valley all my life. I've been in this church, Mariah, for a long time. I've seen a number of people Pastors come in here and leave and go. And I'm the oldest one left now. Have been coming here for about 96 years. So I head around here then was horse and buggies. And the church here at that time, we didn't have any uh, electric. We just had oil lamps. One here, one of them, one there. My name is Edith Whedon. Mary H. Gross is my mother, and I live here in Pleasant Valley, Maryland. The reason they call it a valley, because we are located between two mountain ridges, South Mountain Ridge and Elk Ridge. This used to be a farming community. The people made their living by farming or working on the railroad. But now, the, most of the farmers have sold their land, and people have moved from the city and built homes, and then they commute back and forth to their jobs. It's a nice place to live, neighborly. We treat each other with respect, and that's really important thing, you know, to live in peace. 
I'm Chuck Ludlam, and I live in the Springland Farm community, which uh, most people know as North Cleveland Park, but we believe it should be called the Springland Farm community. The middle of it is the manor house of the proprietor of the Springland Farm, John Adlam, going back to around 1800, and that is on Tilden Street, about one block from the intersection of Tilden and Reno, and right at Springland Lane. John Adlam was a Revolutionary War hero who came to live in the District of Columbia, and he came here to establish a vineyard, and he established perhaps the most important vineyard at that time in the United States and uh, the granddaddy of vineyards in America. Until four years ago, we had a member of the Adlam family still living in the community 200 years after John Adlam first came there. We have found that using history really gives us a sense of our identity. It gives us a source of pride of where our boundaries stop. We actually know where the farm was, we know the history, and we know that we are part of that history and that's who we are as a community. And it's history that binds us together. We heard from Chuck Ludlam in Springland Farm and Mary H. Gross and her daughter Edith Whedon in Pleasant Valley. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And you can see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Patrick Madden, Emily Friedman, Bree Benashore, Martin DeCaro, and Rebecca Blatt, along with reporter Kate Sheehy. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. Jonna McCone, Lauren Landau, and Rafaela Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter link, our Facebook link. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll hit the books with a show on learning. We'll explore the uber-competitive admissions process at some of our region's private schools and hear how D.C. public schools are changing how they teach phys ed. Plus, tourist farmers. We'll explore the lengths some people will go to learn how to work the land. We're learning how to take care of animals and identifying weeds, simple things like that, because I'm very new at this. So some of the very basics, really. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.